This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. From America's farm to fork capital in Sacramento, I'm Amber Stott, chief food genius and founder of the Food Literacy Center, a nonprofit that inspires kids to eat their veggies and understand why. Raising Kale will chronicle the stories of food thought leaders that include chefs, farmers, doctors, leading experts, connecting them back to the communities that are building resilience around a fractured food system. Today, our food is linked to obesity, climate change, workers' rights, and so much more. It's time we understand the story behind the food we eat and the impact our food choices have on our health, the environment, and our economy. It's time to start Raising Kale. Fresh food is very easy. When you have good food, good ingredients, all you really need to often add is salt, maybe some butter or olive oil. The internet and technology are allowing people to engage with their food in ways that simply didn't exist before. With the click of a button, we can be transported to Thailand, Zanzibar, or Paris. We can learn new recipes and find new ingredients. We can conquer our fears of making sourdough bread or learning to pickle. The kale raisers who help us experience these foods and learn to make them are some of my favorite heroes. In this episode, I catch up with one such hero and an old friend, David Leibovitz. He's an American living in Paris. He is an author and food blogger at davidleibovitz.com. I had a lovely time catching up with David about the changes in food trends over his decades-long career, eating in France, food myths, and why a traditional Niçois salad doesn't actually have potatoes or tuna. Mind blown. A bit about David. He started his culinary career at Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California, working with chef Alice Waters. He also worked at the famed Zuni Cafe in San Francisco. He's been featured on Oprah, Bon Appetit, and many more culinary publications. In 2019, Sever Magazine awarded his website their first ever blog of the decade. David, welcome to Raising Kale. Thank you. It's really nice to talk to you again, Amber. I'm really excited that you invited me on. It's a pleasure to see you, uh, your your face, although I've been definitely following along on Instagram and all your beautiful culinary adventures. Uh, you live in Paris currently, but I want to talk about sort of the beginning of your food journey. I hope it's Ooh. fair to say <laughs> that it seems like your food 
experiences were awakened on a trip to Europe, but it didn't start there. You actually were a dishwasher in a steakhouse. So, so kind of talk yeah. about that. <laughs> talk about that experience as a young man. How did your experience of food change and, you know, compare that European experience to what you had been doing? So I guess what you're asking me is how I went from washing dishes in a strip mall, steakhouse, to living in Paris. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think we're going to need a little more time to discuss the whole. Um, but the short answer to that, um, you know, I had an upbringing like a lot of other people. I lived in suburbia in the United States with my parents. And my mother was a working mom. Um, she worked and she made dinner. She cooked, you know, from scratch mostly. Um, she was a good cook. We didn't, you know, we ate what was sort of normal for the times. Like? What do you remember eating? Well, she would make like spare ribs and she would make teriyaki um, ribs in the oven and so forth, stir fry. Back in the 60s, these were not experimental things. Our parents were sort of pioneers, I guess, <laughs> in a way. So we, you know, we ate well. We weren't obsessed with it. But my parents, when we got old enough, they would leave us alone um, with no babysitter. And yep. we had to make dinner for ourselves. And... I remember opening up one of my mom's cookbooks, the settlement cookbook, and there was a recipe for chocolate souffle. I was like, oh, and I was probably 13 or 14 or 15 at the time. Um, and I was like, well, we have all the, you know, it's an egg, it's egg, sugar, butter, and chocolate. In the old days, <laughs> everyone used baking chocolate. Uh -huh. And so I made, I was like, I'm going to make this. It was, you know, it was also in the days when recipes were three sentences. They weren't, you know, five paragraphs. <laughs> You know, people saying, oh, how, which direction do I stir the chocolate in when I'm melting it and so forth. Um, I made this chocolate souffle. I used a Pyrex measuring cup. For dinner. Because, well, yeah, we didn't have a souffle dish, so I made that. It was really good. And it roasts. <laughs> That's um, amazing. But, you know, flash forward to my transition to um, where I am today, I guess. <laughs> Um, I eventually went to Europe after I graduated from college. My grandmother said, travel now because you're never going to have a chance like this again. Yeah. So I traveled for a year um, and I didn't know what to do when I came back to the U.S. I decided to move back and to move to San Francisco. Uh -huh. And I don't really know. It was either like San Francisco or New York because I wanted to live in a big city. Mm -hmm. um, and I ended up moving to San Francisco and I read this book. I was sort of, you know, used to look at cookbooks. Because I was working in restaurants, and I found this book called The Chez Panisse Menu Cookbook, or The Chez Panisse Menu Book. Uh -huh. I think it's called The Chez Panisse Menu Cookbook. <laughs> and I started reading it. I was like, oh, my God, this is just magnificent. This is exactly how I feel about – it just spoke to me. I feel about life. I feel about food. You know, I'd been to Europe. And I sort of skipped over this part. Was I went to college in upstate New York. And in upstate New York is and was quite an agricultural region. You know, Cornell University has apple orchards, and we used to go get apples from them. We got our dairy from Cornell. Um, we had local farmers. This is the 80s. We had local farmers bringing us produce, you know, in this restaurant I worked in because that was how we got produce. And so that was sort of that European sensibility, if you will, mm -hmm. um, even though I also I say it's American because this is, this is in America. Um, but when I came to San Francisco, this whole Chez Panisse, you know, and Chez Panisse was revolutionary. A lot of people don't realize this now. Um, and the older I get, the more I realize a lot of people weren't even born. <laughs> um, but, you know, Chez Panisse, the whole idea of, you know, having local farmers bring food, um, doing a different menu every day, 
um, not doing what the customer wanted, but doing what the kitchen wanted. Um, you know, going with the seasons, mm-hmm. we had things like goat cheese and radicchio and customers used to, you know, guests used to come up to me and go, is that tofu? You know, <laughs> is that red cabbage? You know, they didn't know what a blood orange was. They were uh-huh. like, how do you get the oranges red? <laughs> and now you go to, you know, you get on the airplane and there's radicchio in your salad. McDonald's has, you know, goat cheese probably on their hamburgers. <laughs> So we've come a long way and I've come a long way. So yeah, it was that seasonality that was speaking to you. Um, And, you know, you've been in the culinary world for quite some time. What changes have you seen? I mean, talking about goat cheese on a McDonald's burger, right? Like what what have you seen? What are the trends and transitions? I think one thing is, um, I think Americans especially have gotten really open about food which is something we do really well. We're actually, you know, people, a lot of Americans like to auto-criticize. Uh, we like to criticize ourselves, but we've become really good at absorbing um, the foods of other cultures. So in America, you know, it's not weird to have a breakfast burrito <laughs> or sushi for lunch or, you know, these things, you know, have Burmese takeout. It's just these things have become more accepted, but um, there's so much more information out there. You look at the cookbooks, I'm with 10 Speed Press, my publisher. They publish, you know, vegan Afrocentric recipes, you know, cookbooks. Um, there's just cookbooks from everywhere. There's Burma, um, there's India, different regions of Asia. Um, it's just, it's incredible. And people buy the books too. We're very, we become very curious. Um, and I think that's been a really great thing. We've been, we've evolved a lot. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because, um, Obviously, I teach little kids, elementary school kids, and um, I've always considered that it's sort of very American to be afraid of new food. Because when we get our kids, uh, we might show them a new fruit or vegetable. Their immediate reaction is to, because it's new, say it's gross. And we have to actually kind of work to undo that attitude. Um, and then once once it's undone they consider themselves food adventurers and then like their favorite thing becomes tasting something new. But we first have to start with undoing that. Do you, what do you, what is your sense of that from your readers? People have asked me, they go, you should, you know, one day will you take, you know, show us the baby food aisle at the supermarket in France. We want to see what babies eat. I'm like, well, babies don't really eat baby food in France. Um, The parents, they eat whatever their parents eat. And, you know, they might grind it up or something, but they make food for them. Um, and kids don't have a choice. It's not like, you know, a little kid's like, I don't like carrots. Parents are like, okay, then you're not eating. You know, they there's not that whole, you know, American thing where, oh, you know, try this carrot. It's you know, I know you don't like carrots, but, you know, it, it's good for you. Taste it. <laughs> um, you know, eat it or don't. You know, that's uh-huh. the French way. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, we've become a culture that demonizes food, um, you know, diets, everything is mm-hmm. diet, low fat, keto, gluten free. Um, you know, there's just so many uh, stigmas around food in America, mm-hmm. um, which is really, um, you know, which I, I, have a, I would imagine kids can feel that coming from their parents. Like a baby should not see a carrot and go gross. Because they've never seen a carrot before. Mm-hmm. And carrots are beautiful, too. You know, it's a vegetable. It's pretty. I love carrots. Um, 
so they're getting that they're getting that vibe from somewhere. So it is about the parents. You know, I saw Alice Waters raise her daughter Fanny, yeah, and her daughter was raised to be a sensualist. Um, mm. In terms of her daughter would come in the kitchen when she was two years old, and she was like, "The vinaigrette has too much vinegar." I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> but she had a palate. She was taught to um, eat, to taste food, and to enjoy yeah. it. Yeah, and how do you? help do you find people that are in different places on their food journey that are coming to your blog to learn from you uh how do you help folks on their journey uh you know my it's very interesting because when i started writing cookbooks i started writing for people i didn't want to write for professional chefs i didn't want to write a book that called for a quarter cup of squab stock <laughs> you know i wanted you know 8 ounces of chocolate butter you know things like that yeah. um and if I use something which you know, like Meyer lemons at the time with, you know, I started writing cookbooks, they were weird unless you lived <laughs> in California <clears throat> and now you can find them in more places. But I think it's really off putting for people to be um, not scolded, but um, being told that they can't cook or they need to try harder or make the effort or, um, you know, that they have to cook, you know, you know, everyone's busy, um, but I don't think you need to, I think you really need, people really need a lot of reassurance who are new to cooking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really there's nothing better than a plate of French fries, which is, you know, the ultimate three ingredient meal. You know, <laughs> they may not be the healthiest thing, but, um, you know, even a salad or a steak or, you know, chicken, you know, fresh food is very easy because, you know, when you have good food, good ingredients, Half the you know all you really need to often add is salt and maybe some butter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or olive oil. <laughs> yeah, and speak a little bit more about this because I think um, obviously this this podcast is about kale raisers, uh, people who are sort of um, getting into good trouble and using food as a tool. And I really think that bloggers, food bloggers, are kale raisers because the you've taken away the mystery out of food and and you make it approachable and i think that's something you in particular do so well that's why your blog is so popular is that you know um to think that a 13 year old would be making a chocolate souffle right like that yeah but i wanted well one of the things you know we did uh, we do as bloggers is break down the wall like when i started blogging you know 1999, but a few years later, when people, everyone else started, more people started, I should say. Um, all of a sudden, I was seeing blogs from Vietnam and China and Germany and London and South Africa and America, <laughs> of course, and Thailand. And I was seeing this unfiltered view of food, yeah. which was really amazing because all of a sudden, you know, in the old days, you had to go through Gourmet Magazine or Bon Appetit or Food and Wine mm -hmm. or a publisher to, you know, to, to buy a book. And even then, you didn't really get a glimpse. Everything was kind of um, filtered through the, you know, the gourmet lens <laughs> of making everything beautiful. Uh huh. And we started showing what it was really like. You know, here's a restaurant. I'm, you know, I'm in Korea, and you know, some there was a, a blog called Noodle Pie. I remember, and it was Korea uh, Vietnamese food. And everything just looked, it was like an explosion of flavors and in fresh ingredients. Um, and that's what Vietnam, if you go to Vietnam, that's what the food looks like. 
but I never would have seen that because most, you know, cookbooks are styled. Now they're, that's less, you know, there's less of that and so forth. But one of my things was, um, and is that I like to do with my blog is to make France approachable. Um, I always say I could, I could have made a lot of money if I talked about how beautiful France was in Paris and how I ate chocolate all day <laughs> and, um, and so forth. But it's kind of fun to show the real thing, the markets, yeah. um, and not the fancy markets that you see, you know, with, you know, the celebrities, you know, picking out their tomatoes, but the real, you know, nitty gritty or neighborhoods like Belleville. I live in a multicultural neighborhood and there's a lot of African markets and Asian markets and so forth. Um, it's, I, I love that. And I like people like, I have, we had no idea that existed in Paris. Like, well, it's a multicultural, you know, it's a city. Of course, there's different cultures. Yeah, yeah. And talk about what you do with um, your market visits, because you'll go and buy things and then you'll bring it back and, and walk us through it. It's really quite fun. So talk about that. Well, well it's very interesting because I used to show the mice on Instagram stories. The stories that disappear, I would show things from the market. Mm-hmm. They have to take it out of the bag type up something that make a typo and then I put it up and I was like, Oh, I made a typo. I spelled tomatoes wrong. You know, and I, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to put the bag in front of the camera and take everything out and show everybody. Yeah. And people started, it was, it was kind of amazing how many viewers tuned in. But once again, I wanted to show people what a typical uh, market hall was uh-huh. in France, not, you know, I you know, I'd buy interesting things and I would talk about how much they cost, um, which, you know, in France, you never talk about money because it's like a taboo, like how much things cost. But I think it's very, you know, I was with Heidi Swanson once who has a wonderful blog, 101 Cookbooks, and she was at the market with me in Paris and she was like, oh my God, these peaches would be like $12 a pound in uh, San Francisco and here they're like $2. Wow. Um, so it's a different you know, it's very interesting to give people that perspective, what makes France different, the quality of produce. Um, people are often surprised too, because I tell them, I said, you know, people think, oh, the farmer's market. I'm like, no, these aren't farmers. They're people who are buying produce and selling it. They go to the wholesale market. Just like the butcher, you know, is not out, you know, they don't have animals in the back and they're not out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> or the people that sell the seafood aren't fishing and bringing it in and the in the morning. So, um, it's very interesting to show people that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And they get, they get, they get, it's interesting also because most of the audience in the morning are, are people in Europe or people in other parts of the world rather than America. Um, so I get to meet a lot of those people. Yeah. It, that's part of the joy of food. I think it just brings people together from everywhere because everybody can relate and and you make it relatable because there's this wonderful storytelling you're so good at finding the story in our food and you know like this morning I was on social media and I I think uh there was somebody that posted something about a saltine with butter on it and so many people were commenting with their memories of where and when they ate a saltine with butter on it, right? Because food is that personal that even a saltine will bring up these amazing memories for us. And I feel like you really capture those stories. And they're your stories, right? Yeah. Well, you know, there's been a whole thing recently on the internet with some some application or website 
that is just taking recipes off blogs, um, and they're going to republish. They were going to republish them without the story. Mm. They're like, you know, no more. You know, people always say, you know, skip to the recipe or you know, get to the recipe. But the story to me is part of the recipe, mm-hmm. and it gives context. Um, you know, I just put a recipe up on my blog for tuna salad, um, which or tuna melt, and you know, I had to explain what it meant for me to make it because I hadn't made one in like 20 years. <laughs> I had to explain it to my French partner. Um, but then I had to kind of talk about why I made it the way I made it and how people can change it if they want to change it. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, somebody left a comment, who needs a recipe for tuna salad? Mm-hmm. Like, well, you know, a lot of people don't know how to make mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. And it's very elitist to think, you know, I'm always surprised when people go, do you have a recipe for vinaigrette? I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, put the stuff together. But I think people need reassurance in the kitchen. And rather than scolding them or making them feel um, like idiots um, and talking down to them, it's better to bring the keep the conversation at a level everybody can understand. And I'm a, I would consider myself an intermediate cook. Um, but I appreciate a very basic recipe. I look at Ina Garten. Or Alice Waters, The Simple Art of, of Food. I think she, uh, Chez Panisse wrote a couple of basics books. Mm-hmm. And they're great. If I were like, okay, what's the ratio for polenta? You know, that's all I need. I can add my other stuff to it. But I like being with people rather than talking down to them. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of French food before, you know, once again, it was the magazines, the newspapers that made everything seem um, lofty. Mm-hmm. I think people get really, there's a, a lot of people love Paris, but I think they're scared. Um, sometimes they go into a restaurant and they don't understand what the wine list is. So I like, like I had a friend who's a winemaker and I said, he's a wine distributor rather. And I said, you go into a French restaurant, how do you know what to order? Tell like the basic person, there's a chalkboard. What do they, what do you look for? Yeah. And, you know, and I tell people like, don't feel bad about asking for help. Um, also cause people, I said, you know, if that waiter was in your country, they would feel like really an idiot cause they don't speak the language too. So don't worry about them judging. Yeah, totally. I think that's so important. I think there is a lot of fear and hesitancy and I think, uh, folks who can take that away and do it so well. Um, I, I just, my hat is off to you because it's so important because food is, yeah. is health as well. Well, I thought it was very interesting, too, during the pandemic, how everyone was making bread mm-hmm. um, and, you know, sourdough bread. Um, and people were like, are you making your own bread? I'm like, well, no, because I live in France. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's, there's like five amazing bakeries down the street from me. And I, you know, it's also part of the rhythm of life to go buy bread. Like no one in France makes their own bread <laughs> um, or very few people do. It's just, yeah. Um, but it was really nice to see people cooking again and showing their mistakes online too. Um, I love that. Um, you know, a lot of it's trial and error, but bread is not, I mean, you know, you can go buy a loaf of bread for $12, but bread is the most basic food there is. That's what, you know, peasants ate and eat, you know, people make bread and they, you know, that's the sustenance of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think also there's something, um, that you talk about when you were first working at Chez Panisse about um, portions and portion control. We always hear these 
you know, uh, stereotypes about, well, how, how can French women eat everything and they stay so thin? And, um, so, so talk about like eating what you love and eating wonderful foods like breads and chocolates and, and, and health. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I was recently interviewed by a French magazine and they sent me some questions that they were going to ask me. And one of them was, can you talk about why French women don't get fat? And I wrote them back and, you know, I didn't want to say this is kind of a sexist question, (laughs) but I said, you know, that's not true. Actually, you know, French people look like everybody else. Now you go to Paris and everyone's fit because they're all running down the street, you know, Metro. It's like Los Angeles. Everyone's at the gym all day. Um, to go elsewhere, you know, people look different. People come in all shapes and sizes. Um, and, you know, the, the French way of eating has been scrutinized for a long time. Um, but what a lot of people don't realize about the French is that they're so tied to their region. Mm-hmm. And the region isn't just like, where are you from? It's not like in America where you go, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Ohio. No one said, oh, Ohio, they have really good goat cheese. You know, it's always, oh, Ohio, go cheat, go uh, football team, whatever. <laughs> um, but in France, everyone talks about the cheeses. Oh, you know, you're from the Jura, you have Conte cheese and so forth. Or Burgundy, oh, they're very good wine there. And that connection is still there. Um, I, I, I was telling somebody recently, I said, well, you know, basically everyone in Paris is like one or two generations away from being um, farm people. And there's a word in French called paysan, which is peasants, um, which is sort of pejorative now in a way. The, the people who live a simpler life, who, you know, might raise their own animals or so forth. So there still is that really strong connection to agriculture and so forth in France. Yeah. And I think um, there are so many. You have talked about, you know, the myth of like all these American diets and um it it really yeah. sort of puts it puts a little bit of ridiculous pressure on our food, right? Uh, that all, one food can yeah. can do do or undo so much for you, um, and yeah. you know, sort of talk about your relationship with the diversity of food, and you know how that plays into. Uh, I th- I think. Um, there's more than one way to look at our health, uh, you know, healthy attitude, mm-hmm. healthy uh, mindset. Like, talk about some of that. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's a real loaded question. Um, and I have a friend, um, and she had a blog, and she's very thin, and she likes to eat and drink. She's, you know, very healthy. But we're, she was saying that question when people say, how do you stay so thin? She goes, I find that really sexist. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I get asked that question all the time, too, even though I'm not. Thin, I'm just, I'm average. I'm, um, and I don't obsess with my weight. I don't weigh myself. I don't have a scale. I believe, um, and maybe this is naive, but I believe if you feel good, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I look in the mirror and I'm, everyone, of course, could lose like three pounds or whatever. Um, but I eat well. You know, I'll eat M&Ms once in a while, <laughs> but I really like fresh food. I love you know, I eat bread for breakfast. Everyone during the whole no carb thing, I was like, oh. I, I'm sorry, I can't give up bread. I, you know, I, I you know, Same. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to have abs, but I'm eating bread for breakfast Same. every morning. I've, I've always eaten bread. I love it. <laughs> I know some people can eat bread, but there's, yeah. My partner actually just stopped eating bread in the morning um, because he had it made, made him feel heavy. 
and he's oh. French. So he's now eating. Well, it's funny because he eats fruit with yogurt and milk. And then I make granola and he puts like literally like a cup of granola on it. I was like, you do realize that, you know, <laughs> um, but you know, I had to learn, I actually had to relearn how to eat when I left the restaurant business because mm-hmm. I'd worked in restaurants since I was 16. And when I was about 40, I quit and I was used to eating everything. I just ate, you know, cause I was on my feet. It was like an aerobics class. I was young. <laughs> And I was just shoving food in my mouth. And it was, you know, it was a chez panisse and I was eating really good food, <laughs> but I was eating butter, foie gras, cream, you know, everything. Uh-huh. And when I left the restaurant business, I stopped and I said, I, I can't eat like that anymore because um, I'd gained a bunch of weight. And um, not because of, you know, I just was like, I don't like, you know, feeling this way. Yeah. I don't like looking this way. Um, I just didn't feel healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mean healthy in terms of, you know, vitamins and minerals. I just <laughs> didn't feel like I was living my best life. Uh-huh. Say. Uh-huh. So I started cutting back on the quantity of food I ate. You know, instead of eating a whole piece of cake, I would eat a half a piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I love sharing dessert. I don't like to deny myself anything, mm-hmm. but now I've, I've got discipline sort of, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't keep potato chips around because I love potato chips a lot. Um, but, <laughs> so, you know, but I don't deny myself things. Um, and that sort of is the French way of eating. You know, one day I used to lead tours and somebody was, we were going into a bakery and, you know, one of my an American guests or client said, what do they do with all this stuff at the end of the day with all the leftovers? They're like, well, there's nothing left over. <laughs> you're right everybody eats all these desserts um but you know they're not snacking and all the food is like you know relatively healthy it's butter flour sugar eggs um you know it's not that you know you wouldn't want to eat three you know gâteau chocolat a day but i'm very fine um having you know we we split dessert a lot uh-huh. you know so yeah, yeah. And I'm content with that. Yeah. Um and and you know, food is joy and, and that's healthy too. <laughs> well, I know you had Alice Waters as your guest on, and when I got hired by Alice, she said, I don't want people leaving here feeling sick. Hmm. Like I don't want people feeling full. Hmm. And that's always been a barometer in um restaurants. People say, Oh, we, we ate at that such and such restaurant and we were still hungry. Hmm. It's like, oh, you know, well, I've left some restaurants where I was like, ex- like I see the portions in America and they're mm. huge. Yeah. Um, I always forget that when I go back to America, so I'll order like an appetizer, you know, like French style, <laughs> like an appetizer and a main course. Um, and that's why we have doggy bags to, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> to take everything home. But it's like, just serve half portions or, you know, smaller portions. Yep. But everyone also wants value in the U.S. Yep. That's a very important thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I also wanted to, you know, talk about travel and exploring different foods and parts of the world. And, you know, have, you know, you're an American who lives in Paris. So for us watching, every day feels like travel through you for us. Um, does it still feel like that for you? Um, it kind of does. But one of the great things about living abroad somewhere is that you're not jet lagged and you're not a tourist. 
Um, <laughs> so you're living a daily, you know, so I used to travel to Paris. I'd go for a week mm-hmm. and, you know, you eat all this food and then you're just like, you know, you're jet lagged and you're whacked out. <laughs> and it's nice to just sort of be a part of daily life. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's why I think a lot of people like to rent apartments with kitchens when they travel, which I actually don't love doing because it's like, I don't want to wash dishes. <laughs> like I do that all day. <laughs> it's like, I'm on vacation. I want, I want to go to restaurants. Yeah. Um, but I've started feeling more, I'm, I'm a very uncomfortable person. I'm very shy. I'm an introverted. And I, when I travel, I'm very timid of going to places new, you know, so I try to be, but I've learned in France, like, don't feel intimidated, go in. Cause that's, you know, that's what people do. You go to a restaurant, you, you say what you want and, um, it's appreciated. People are much more direct there than they are in America. What do you, uh, wish people better understood um, about our food? You know, there's a lot of basic things like shopping in the seasons, you know, shopping, buying from producers, um, all those things are really important, um, especially now in America, because when I left, you know, if you wanted raspberries, you waited till the summer. And now when I go to like come to the States, like in December, the supermarkets have like big clamshell boxes of strawberries and raspberries and blueberries and melons and peaches. And I'm like, and sometimes I'll buy them I'm like blueberries. Yeah, because we don't get blueberries in France that easily. Um, and they're terrible. They, you can taste like whatever they wash them with, oh. you know, something disgusting. So I love going to farmer's markets. I love going to supermarkets, too. I, I love seeing how real people eat, you know. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way because I'm a real person. I go to the supermarket and I've, I've bought mustard and mayonnaise and canned tuna and all that stuff, too. <laughs> Occasionally, potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> they are they call them, it's, Yeah. Well, a friend of mine worked for Jenny Craig, and he said the first thing they did was put a bag of potato chips in a blender and turn it on. And he goes, and people, it would turn into this, like, oily sludge. Oh. And, he, and I, every time I eat a potato chip now, <laughs> I think of that oily sludge. And it's a really good visual because, you know, it's fine to eat potato chips, you know, but if I eat them, I eat them. I put some in a bowl, I put the bag away, and I eat what's in the bowl. So <laughs> I have to use that <laughs> trick, too. I also love them. <laughs> or use chopsticks to eat them. Oh, man. <laughs> then I would get very few. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I also think it's really good. Um, being online has been a really good thing, I think, for food. You know, food blogging has changed since... Um, I started and not necessarily for the better, but there's so many conversations about food and there's so much information about food. Now there's a whole industry reporting on food. You know, there's websites like Eater and Food Republic um, and Grub Street and newspapers now have, you know, they sort of ramped up their food and it's very interesting and there's very good um, information out there. And one of the problems is there's a lot of information out there. Yes. So, but it's good, you know, you can edit what you read, um, curate what you read, um, and so forth. The filtering and the finding of information, definitely. Um, it, there's great stuff out there, but, you know, the the hunt is is real. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we have a mutual friend, Elise Bauer, who was also a guest on your show. And Elise is very interesting because, as you know, she wasn't a cook. She just started cooking to learn how to cook from her parents. And she wrote from, here's how to make meatloaf. 
here's how to, you know, here's how to you know, make tomato sauce. But it was so basic um, and so heartfelt. You could read the sincerity in it. Yeah. And she became a huge success, as we all know. But yet, yet she still was just the most wonderful, giving person that you could meet. And she really was also one of the people that brought everybody, believed in bringing up everybody else with her. So that's what food does as well. So it doesn't matter what level you're at. You know, she wasn't like a grand chef. She's not, wasn't Thomas Keller. And she used to say to me, well, I'm not a writer. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, you know, you're writing two paragraphs, but you're saying what needs to be said in those two paragraphs. Um, and she was very reassuring. And I'm really against snobbism and food. You know, I think the best writers write for everybody, even like Richard Olney, who was a very extraordinary writer, wrote about French cooking. Um, and it was not easy French cooking, but you understood everything that he was, he would tell you how to do everything. Or Judy Rogers, the Zuni Cafe cookbook. Yeah. You know, Judy was an amazing cook, but she would tell you why you salt something at a certain point. So you'd learn something mm-hmm. and it just made you a better cook. Yeah. So was- people say, how do I make vinaigrette? I'm like, well, here's the basics. But, you know, get used to whatever vinegar you have, salt, you know, what do you like? Do you like more vinegar? Do you like a little mustard? You know, here's what you can do to tweak it. And I like that. I like when people go off on their own, too. Absolutely. Then you know that they've uh, acquired some skills because they feel confident. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about food is it's been, you know, especially the last couple of years, been a lot of stuff around food and some of it's negative. And it's become a more challenging place to write about food because you have to be careful what you talk about, what you make, how you present it. And that's tough. I think it's, you know, it's tough to have all these standards. Well, and I I see you doing that in some of your writing, like with your tuna melt, you you were like, okay, I just want to start by like dispelling the myth that fish and dairy do go together yeah. <laughs> because I can yeah. see you warding off well, the negative blowback, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of the most interesting things a lot of people don't know about the salad niçoise is that it's actually a raw vegetable salad. There's no cooked vegetables. It's not supposed to have potatoes. It's not supposed to have green beans on it. It's not supposed to have grilled tuna either. Um, oh, and I'm I learning about something that. new. However, I did not know these yeah. things. Yes. It's a yeah, it's a raw vegetable. Some say the original salad was just sliced tomatoes with olive oil and anchovies on it. Oh, wow. Um, but, you know, I wrote about that because I thought it was very interesting because you just sort of perked up when I said that. And I like to teach people something. On the other hand, you know, people are like, but I like green beans. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Great. You know, put green beans on the salad. You can call it an isoise. It's fine. You know, I make a uh, cassoulet. I don't know if you know the dish. It's a French be- meat and bean dish. It's uh, from Gascony, it's cooked very long time in a wood-fired oven. It's wonderful and crusty on top. Mm. And I put breadcrumbs on top, which some people do. And that's not a, the official. And I have a friend in Gascony who's like the official cassoulet expert. <laughs> and whenever she posts a picture of cassoulet, I was like, you forgot the breadcrumbs. <laughs> <laughs> and we laugh about it because, you know, it's just food and it's not meant, you know, I could go, you know, I could, you know, she could criticize me for putting breadcrumbs on it. But in the end, it's just food and we're all learning and we're all doing our best. I think that is a really important message and one that I think, you know, um, brings people to this topic of food and and opens doors um, where 
prior to that, maybe they felt shut. I, I do think um, the world of blogging has so much improved that for for everyday people. I mean, uh, same with me. I grew up in in the Midwest and we didn't have a lot. I remember the first time I ate Thai food was, you know, I was visiting another city and I walked by and I said, what smells so good? I had no idea what it was. Um, a friend friend of mine went to Thailand and she goes, well, after a week I got tired because everything had the same ingredients and it was like peanuts, fish sauce and sugar, you know. I was like, I would never get tired of Thai food. No. <laughs> but, you know, speaking of the Midwest, another thing that's very interesting about America, is people have this image that the Midwest is this horrible place food-wise. And I was one of those, I didn't, I didn't think it was a horrible place, but I didn't know. I'd never been to these places. And I started going on book tours. I went to Texas and Ohio, and I went to these supermarkets that were unbelievably amazing. Like in Ohio, there's this place called the Dorothy Lane Supermarket, mm. which sounds like something in a soap opera, you know, like where <laughs> people go. Um, but they had like local goat cheese and all these this beautiful produce. And Texas, you know, the Central Market, you know, they have the Citrus Festival in the winter. And there's like 18 kinds of wines, you know, it's just, it's you know, unbelievable. So I'm, I'm really against this whole shaming too of food and, you know, different places. Because there's good food everywhere. Um, and there's bad food everywhere, too. There's bad food in France. Um, yeah. There's this whole, is a funny, there's a lot of discussion about school food in France. Mm. And in America, in the media, they'll show like a chef with a chef's hat cooking you know, meals for these children. <laughs> and my friend friends are like, we didn't have that. We had like tongue, like boiled tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! Like yes. boiled with tomato sauce. Yeah, I would say that is a, a another myth that people hold up uh, school lunch in France as the ideal. And could we please get to that? Uh, and meanwhile, we have amazing meals in school lunch in California. We're very lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends where you are in America, you know. And I also don't like using the word lucky because lucky is opening your door and finding a winning lottery ticket. Um, people in California made that happen. Um, people fought for change, um, like you are out there. Um, you know, even someone like, you know, I don't want to keep talking about Elise Bauer, but she went out there and showed people how to cook with everyday ingredients, how to make meatloaf. Even though they were going to the supermarket, they were making it from scratch and you know, what's in the food you're eating. So, um, the next podcast, we'll do a whole talk with about Elise Bauer. Oh. <laughs> well, she is a dear human. I love her. Yeah. <laughs> She's worth talking about. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, people really made an effort in California. I remember, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I lived in California, I went to the Safeway or Super or Safeway, not the Safeway. <laughs> I feel like those people talk about the Facebook, <laughs> the old people. Um, I remember, you know, all of a sudden they started having Strauss milk and organic apricots. And I remember I was talking to the manager of my Safeway and he said, well, just tell us what you want and we'll, we'll start carrying it. I was like, okay, well, we really need to get you know good chocolate here and um, aluminum-free baking powder. And they started carrying it. Wow. So, and, and now you go to the supermarket in America and it's a much better place than it used to be. Um, you know, cause I asked and I engaged with them and they listened. And and I do think that is another uh, change that has occurred with the internet is food being more democratic, people being able to participate more yeah. actively with it. I think so. You know, the other side of the equation is money. You know, good food costs money. 
Mm. Um, not necessarily. Um, and that's always going to be a problem. Like how do we make food affordable and pay the people that grow it a reasonable amount of money? And people always forget the second part of that. Cause they're like, we need to make food affordable. Yes. But we also need to pay the people that are making it a decent wage that they can live on. Um, Absolutely. And that's, you know, you know, I always tell people like, you know, people like four dollars for a basket of raspberries. That's ridiculous. I'm like, have you ever picked a basket of raspberries? Like, you know, <laughs> it's a lot of work. Yep. Um, but it's tough. You know, California is fortunate because there's a lot of people who made a lot of money the last, you know, twenty or so years who could afford to go eat out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I often see people, you know, complaining about oh these these people who go to McDonald's they could make like a um, they could just buy a chicken at the supermarket. It's cheaper and serve it with broccoli. I'm like, well, they're parents with kids. They both work. They get home at seven o'clock. They're exhausted and they actually want to go out to eat. Like I can go out to eat and it makes me feel not, not right now because all the restaurants are closed, but it makes me feel better. And a lot of people want to eat um, out. And the only way they can do it is to go to McDonald's. Um, fortunately, people have demanded better quality fast food. Mm-hmm. So there are places like Chipotle and In-N-Out Burger that are making a better effort. And probably McDonald's is making a better effort mm-hmm. as well, just due to people wanting healthier food yeah. or healthier choices. Yeah, it's so important for people to understand that we're all uh, we're all approaching food with different barriers, different levels of knowledge, different... Yes. Uh, it's really important. Yeah. 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 And that. we're also fortunate to have food. Um, you know, so much of the world, people don't have food. And we're so fortunate. We go to the supermarket and buy stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's carrots, you know. And I think we saw this in, during the pandemic. All of a sudden, people were like, oh, my God, I, there's no flour. Mm-hmm. We took flour for granted. You know? yeah. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, for me, it was like, it's my job to have flour. It wasn't not a luxury to have flour. I, I need flour. Yeah. That's like telling a truck driver they can't have any gas. <laughs> it's like, it's like I, you don't understand. Yeah. In, in Paris, was there also a shortage on flour? Um, yes. It was very interesting because, you know, people don't hoard stuff in France. It's uh-huh. not like America where everyone's buying toilet paper, you know. <laughs> I was like, why? Why you, you know, How much toilet paper do you need? Um <laughs> But people were baking, you know, France has a shorter, has a different food chain. And they, you know, even during the best of times, you go to the supermarket and they're out of sugar, mm. especially like Saturday afternoon because <laughs> it's the end of the week. And I've learned like, don't go to the supermarket till Tuesday afternoon because they have to restock and everything. Uh-huh. And they, don't, they also don't carry like 17 brands of sugar. They have like one or two. Gotcha. So during the lockdown, there was a shortage of sugar, um, all purpose flour and baking chocolate. So, um, luckily my local bakery gave me three kilos of chocolate, which is like seven pounds, which was the best. (laughs) So I owe that. I owe them. That's great. (laughs) Oh, well, what else, um, as we wrap up here, what else do you wish that, uh, listeners, uh, could maybe do in their own communities to improve their own experience with food? I think one of the main things we've seen, especially during the pandemic, is to shop locally, um, which sounds cliche. We've been hearing that over and over again. But it's good to support the businesses in your neighborhood, especially restaurants. Um, I, I, 
horrible story. A restaurant in LA is closing because people real figured out that they could, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, oppose the credit card the charge. They could call the credit card and say, Oh, they didn't give us our kimchi. So we want a refund and the credit card company would refund their money. And the restaurant owner was kind of, she'd had this restaurant for nine years or he, um, and they were going to close. They were like, this is bankrupting us. Um, but then they launched a Kickstarter and they got like $80,000, which was amazing. So it shows how communities can come together and help people. Like even if you spend 50, you know, I don't know how she got the $80,000, but you know, people are probably giving $50, $20. Um, so it's good to just think about that stuff. I mean, it's very easy, especially now to buy things online. Um, it's actually some places it's hard to get food. You know, if you need sumac for, you know, a Middle Eastern dish you're making, you know, if you live in, um, I don't know, it's going to, I won't name a city cause I'll get so well, I live there and we have real, we can get sumac anywhere. Um, <laughs> But, you know, sometimes things are hard to get. So the Internet is a place to get those things. Um, but, it, you know, I think we've seen how important it is when our neighbors are going out of business, the store down the street, the bakery down the street, the restaurant down the street. And we're seeing how important those businesses are because they've been taken away from us. Mm-hmm. And a restaurant's not just about um, serving you food and feeding you. It's about, your, about having a good time, mm-hmm. you know, and being part of the community. Beautiful. Yeah. I like that perspective. Yeah. Um, and, and it is a mantra that we continue to hear from guest after guest on this podcast of, you know, please eat local and think about the seasons and think about the farmers. So um, it, yeah. it, it continues to come back to that. There's definitely um, an echo here. So yeah. Important. And, you know, it's interesting if you look at the price difference. I mean, it's hard to talk about money with people because a lot of people, you know, 50 cents is a big deal. Um, and that's a different subject. Um, but like carrots at the market, you go to the market and you buy carrots and they're delicious. And you go to the supermarket and the carrots don't taste so good. Um, so it's, to me, it's okay. You know, fortunately I can afford to spend 50 cents more for carrots. Um, but not everyone can. And you know, that's one of the problems, you know, there's, there's more systemic problems in society that, cause that disparity. Absolutely. And I think that needs to be addressed. You know, food is so important. And and I hope too that the the current pandemic has shed a new light on some of these issues. And um, we definitely see people speaking more openly and, you know, even some of the recent um, federal and state packages are trying to address some of these issues uh, in ways that they haven't considered yeah. before. So um, there, it is hopeful yeah. when people begin to, to think more consciously about this stuff. I think you're right. I think the pandemic has showed us like the flaws in the tip system, for example, um, in you know, several ways, not just, you know, in terms of making money, but how people are treated um, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also, you know, is, I think the minimum wage is $7 an hour, seven twenty-five an hour. Um, is that enough for people to live on who live in a city like San Francisco? Um, and I'm not talking about the people that, you know, that, you know, the people that work at Starbucks or people who work at, you know, the supermarket. Um, how do people, how can people live? Um, we're looking at the healthcare system again in America, giving it another look. Um, and due to the pandemic, 
So, and people are proposing changes, and it'll be interesting to see which ones um, actually stick. Um, that's a whole other discussion. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Well, and um, we're almost out of time. So, w- what are you eating today? Well, I just had a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, from you know, I made guacamole because uh, I had all these avocados that were nice and ripe. So after I had breakfast, I made guacamole. Mm. I didn't have any chilies, so I cheated and put some Korean chili paste in it. Ooh. So I know that's a no. I know that's a no no, but um, I had to have my spice in there. <laughs> that's all I had. Uh-huh. Um, hard to get. So um, chili, fresh chilies sometimes. Um, so I, for lunch, I had a salad with uh, with some kale. Actually, I had Tuscan kale that I massaged. Nice. Um, I'm into romaine's lettuce again. We've all been eating like baby lettuce for so long. It's kind of like <laughs> eating all this, like I, a handful of just cut grass. I'm like, you know what? I want romaine. I want crunchy. I want to bite down a salad. <laughs> it's nice. much more satisfying. So I had that with radishes and some um, crumbled blue cheese in it. Oh, yum. Yeah. And I'm not sure what dinner is. So. <laughs> that's okay it's <laughs> it's farther away <laughs> well thank you so yeah. much for spending some time with me today david i, I really appreciate oh, it yeah, yeah thanks it was great to chat with you and one of the reasons it was great that we met during because of our blogs yeah so, yep. <laughs> and i get to see you 15 years later <laughs> <laughs> exactly i know it's been a while since food blog camp <laughs> yeah. where was the one we met at was it mexico mm-hmm. yep that was really fun. <laughs> yeah, those were fun. It's like, it's just, we should have like a reunion camp because we did one where we went to the Bahamas and one in Mexico. Well, um, and I, I guess it's the like the 10 year anniversary of the one in Mexico because people have started reaching back out to one another and posting things. Uh, and so it's actually been really fun. I've reconnected with several of the people from from there. And it's fun to see where everybody is now and what they're up to. And and also just for people listening, if you know, people think Bahamas, Mexico, we got deals from the hotels. And, um, this is, and this is also before influencers and everything. But we negotiated good. These weren't super expensive, fancy retreats. <laughs> but we had fun. Absolutely. We had a good time. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and we built community too. Exactly. I'm still friends with so many people I met there and, and yeah. yeah, it means a lot. So yeah. Thank yeah. you for taking the time and um glad, glad to see you. <laughs> yeah. And happy anniversary on, on your book today as well. Ah, uh, yes. Today's the one year anniversary of my latest book, Drinking French. So um, it was very interesting because I was supposed to go on book tour last year on this day. The, the book party was supposed to be last night, mm. a year ago, 366 days ago, and it got canceled. So it was very interesting to take take my book tour to the internet, and so to speak. Um, but it was great because I got to meet like a lot of people. Rather than just 20 or 50 at a book event, I got to meet like hundreds of thousands. Yeah. 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 Well, and I'm excited for the the cocktail that you are going to be making today because I have never heard of violet liqueur. So I'm looking forward to that. Ah, okay. It's a natural, they they don't use any dyes in there. Um, This is from a distiller called Tempest Fugit that's reviving old fashioned uh, liqueurs, liqueurs and cremes. And they say they don't use any, um, this is all natural ingredients. So 
I'm going to use this today to make an aviation. Fun. Yeah. I'm going to have to tune in because that looks really neat. I'm, I'm excited to try it. I am too. I could use a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Celebrate my the anniversary of my book. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again, David, and um, enjoy okay. your time with family. Okay. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David. He's such a delightful human with so much wisdom to share. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying Raising Kale, please share it, subscribe to it, and rate it. Your participation allows us to keep bringing you more fascinating kale raisers from around the world. Next time, I speak with rock star Gavin Rossdale. When he's not singing with his band Bush, he loves to cook. He heard about Raising Kale and offered to leverage his platform to help us reach more people. That's true kale raising in action. Don't miss this lively conversation next time on Raising Kale.